Hi, my name's Alyssa. And my name's Melissa. Welcome back to the Deliverability Defined Podcast. Each week, we'll be diving deep into a topic and giving you practical advice to improve your email deliverability. In other words, we'll help you reach the inbox of your subscribers and stay out of their spam folders, leading to more success in your email marketing. Deliverability can be complex, but we're here to define it. Good morning, Melissa. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Doing good. Uh, It's rainy and kind of stormy today, which I kind of like. And you all might get some nice, relaxing thunder and rain sounds in the background. We'll see. (laughs) Hopefully that doesn't put you to sleep. Yeah, exactly. I have a candle going. It's really cozy over here. Sounds pretty good. I'm in Seattle, and it's actually been so nice this whole week. And exciting news, we bought a house. So that's all I'm thinking about is how we're going to renovate it and make it our own. It's so cute. That landscaping is insane. Thank you. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I know. I'm so jealous. Look, my boyfriend was like, oh, you know, we're going to have to spend like thousands of dollars every month on bark because it's supposed to be low maintenance, but the oh, bark yeah. is going <laughs> to I mean, rain so much here. We'll see what happens. <laughs> That's true. Well, it looks amazing. And you won't have to mow at least. I, I know. know. We're going to have to do a lot of like shrub trimming, which will be. Look at you. You're going to be so skilled. I know. We've got a lot of projects. It's time to be adults. <laughs> Honestly, especially with, you know, being quarantined, like home projects are so fun right now, especially being out, landscaping. I need to go pick some weeds. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a good time. Yeah, exciting. I am tonight going to go to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Oh, fun. To go, uh, we have an inspection on our cabin tomorrow. Oh, nice. So I really hope that goes well because I really want to have a little cabin in the mountains that you all can all use on Airbnb. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, well, fingers so crossed. We'll Thank you. Thank you. Well... You know, outside of the fun real estate stuff, maybe that can be a whole nother podcast. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) You should probably talk about deliverability, which is still fun. Uh, I think today's episode is going to be really great. Melissa, you are leading this episode. So what is it all about? (laughs) Well, today we're going to talk about the most frequently asked questions that we get at ConvertKit. Obviously, if you're not a ConvertKit customer, this a lot of this will transfer over, you know, to you as well. So it's not just specific to ConvertKit. There'll be a few things here and there that might be. But overall, I would say these are the questions we receive the most often. And I imagine that probably any ESP would probably, you know, would get questions like this. They're pretty straightforward and overarching. So yeah, just looking through the list, I would definitely say when I worked at other ESPs, these were the exact same questions we got asked over and over. So I think it'll be great to cover these top questions. I'm sure you all listening have had these before. and We can talk about how to address them. You know, a lot of this information is stuff that we've covered in previous episodes. So we're going to try not to be redundant, but I do think sometimes it's nice to hear something a couple times in order to really like let it sink in and be like, oh, I think, you know, I think this is the issue I might be having. So hopefully it won't be too um, repetitive, but yeah, we'll just kind of dive right in. I would say the number one most asked question that I get all the time is why are my emails going to spam? And it's funny because it normally starts a snowball of conversations about other deliverability related topics, but this is the initial one that gets people sort of paying attention to their list and what's going on with their account. Yeah. And just hearing you say that question is so interesting because I think 
what a lot of senders tend to do is maybe one person will reach out to them and say, hey, your email went to my spam folder. And immediately their um, assumption is that all of their messages go to spam or they have some crazy huge issue, which definitely could be the case. But a lot of times spam filtering happens on such an individual basis that it's not like you have a huge issue. It's just that that one subscriber has some sort of spam filter or setting that decided your message should go to the spam folder, right? One like, I don't know, real life kind of example of this that I always think of is when there's not coronavirus going on, my husband is typically a touring like tour manager and the band that he works with most often, Drew Holcomb and the neighbors, they use ConvertKit for their marketing emails. But when it comes to like their ticketing and VIP meet and greet kind of stuff, they have a different service. And that service will send out the um, information about the VIP kind of meet and greet details. So it'll tell them what time to be at the venue, where to meet. And it's so sad, but typically at like almost every show, there'll be at least one person who totally missed the meet and greet, even though they paid for it. And they're like, I didn't get the email. And then my husband will be like, let me look at your spam folder. And then it's in the spam folder. And they're so sad. And it's terrible, but like, you know, there were 30 other people or whoever that all went there and got it in their inbox and it was fine. So that's one example of why spam filtering is such a bummer sometimes and it can really, you know, ruin someone's day. But it's also very unique to an individual person at times, which can make it hard to troubleshoot and all that good stuff. Right. That's usually what I try to do initially when someone reaches out and says that. I usually try to say, okay, well, you know, I totally understand why this is frustrating. Just keep in mind that, you know, emails can go to the spam folder for so many different reasons. Before we really dive in, you know, it's also not like you just said, it's not everybody normally. It's usually just individual um, subscribers having issues getting your emails into their primary inbox. So I usually try to like go that route just so people don't feel like they need to panic. I think it's also, and this is not meant to be offensive in any way, but it's very easy to want to blame the person that you feel like has the most control over your sending. And I think oftentimes as a customer, I would feel the same way, truthfully, if it was me, like, and I didn't know that much about deliverability, I would assume that the ESP had a lot more control over where my emails were going which is understandable. So I do like to kind of help people come back to a middle ground first before we even dive in. Just remind them that there are so many things that can make that happen. So the first thing I always do is test an email. And I usually just pick a random one a little bit, little ways back. I look at who they sent the email to initially. I look at if there were any filters on the email itself, like, you know, if you send to your most engaged part of your audience. So maybe you send to your cold subscribers separately or whatever the case may be. So I always check those things first and then I send myself the email and I see where it lands. And that's kind of anybody can do that. Anybody can get that process started. And then from there, I kind of troubleshoot you know, if the email doesn't land in spam, that's a good sign. If it does, then we can go a little bit further. But that's kind of where we start the process. And again, anyone can do this. We have mentioned in the past that it's helpful to use an address that's not the same as your sending address. Yeah, that's such a good one. And I think Alyssa also, I mean, that's kind of how she taught me initially to troubleshoot why emails are going to spam. So there's obviously 
a list of reasons why this happens. And I just wanted to kind of cover sort of the major ones. And we can start with the first one, which is a bad sender reputation. Oftentimes, you know, there's something that will happen with a sender that causes the email box providers to notice that something is a little off. So whether that's a purchased email list or they're sending too often to cold subscribers, maybe they're sending too much in general and they're receiving complaints. But bad sender reputation is one way to almost ensure that you're going to start ending up in the spam folder more often. Yep, that's such a good one. And that goes to what you were saying earlier. And we have a whole episode about this, actually. So if you're wondering where an ESP's power lies in giving you good deliverability, go check out that episode. But this is a great example of when you as a sender have the power to make it to the inbox or the spam folder. If you're curious about sender reputation, also have an episode on that. So we won't go too in-depth, but it's all about signals. At the end of the day, spam filters are machines and algorithms, and all they know is the signals that they're getting from your subscribers. So you might not think it's a huge deal to send an email to a list that is mostly unengaged. You know, you think, well, that's okay. You know, I'm just going to email them anyways. Maybe they'll open. But at the end of the day, that spam filter is seeing a bunch of negative signals by people not opening or not engaging in any way or marking it as spam, but and they're only seeing a small amount of the positive signals. So to any machine, that's going to look like spam and potentially hurt your reputation and get you in the spam folder. So that's why it's really important to think about the signals you are sending the spam filters. Make sure you don't look like a spammer because at the end of the day, <laughs> how many times can I say that? I know. I say it all the time because they just see the signals. They, they only see the data. They're not, you know, a human actually looking at the content, looking at your website and thinking, oh, this looks great. So make sure you're looking at things that way. Right. And we always say too, I think, and Alyssa, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but sender reputation is one of the most heavily weighed pieces of information that email box providers use to decide where they're going to place your emails. Yeah, definitely. They're going to look at that domain in the from address that you've chosen to send from. And if on whatever ESP you're using, you have what we call verified your sending domain at other places, it might be called something else. Um, But essentially, that means you've also put your domain in two other places in the headers of the email to use it for authentication. That means your sender reputation is going to be weighed even heavier. So yes, it's a very, very important part that you need to have in place. And if not, you can guarantee your messages will probably go to spam. So that's probably the, I would say, the number one thing I see. And oftentimes, they can be new to ConvertKit, the customer I'm working with. So maybe they just don't really have a reputation at all, you know, sending through ConvertKit, which is totally fine. And that just takes time. There's not really a whole lot you can do about that. So yeah, those are kind of the bad sending reputation can really, like you said, put you in a in a bad position. The next thing is failing DMARC. So Alyssa, you're really good at explaining DMARC policies and how they work. But, you know, a lot of times I'll send myself a test and it will go to the spam folder and I will pull the headers of the message, which we've also talked about this in our authentication episode. But when you pull those headers, you can actually see that you are your messages are being authenticated or not. And if not, um, and if you have a DMARC record in place, sometimes it will say DMARC equals fail. And that's actually quite common. And it's understandable if you're not as familiar with deliverability and maybe you just set up your domain 
you're not really paying attention to the verbiage um, and then you get to convert kit, you just might not realize this is happening. Yeah, such a good point. I think a lot of people maybe read somewhere the DMARC is a great step for them to do, and maybe it is, or you know, your IT person, whoever's setting up your domain, just goes and adds it without telling you. But if you want to put a DMARC record on your domain, it's really, really important that you know what you're doing and that you've prepared yourself to pass DMARC. So yeah, like you're saying, I think a lot of people just slap a DMARC record on their domain and they make it really strict right out of the gate. So you can make it essentially say, if a message comes from my domain and fails DMARC, send it straight to spam. That would be a P equals reject policy. And if you're using an ESP like ConvertKit or any other platform, you are going to need to take some steps to make sure that platform can send emails on your behalf and pass DMARC. So ConvertKit, that's validating your domain and other ESPs. I'm sure they have, you know, different terminology for it, but that's a really, really good one. And it's also, we've said before, one of our favorite (laughs) reasons to go to spam because it is one of the only ones that can be fixed instantly almost. Mm -hmm. So if you think that could be happening to you, be sure to pull the headers of your email. And we do have a YouTube video in the ConvertKit channel on how to do that. So we can put that in the show notes. Um, Be sure to check it out. Yeah. And that one, like you said, that one's fun because it's a simple fix, but (laughs) the other ones are not always that easy. The next thing that I notice, I would say maybe not quite as often as the other two, but I do notice it is when someone is experiencing list bombing. So if you have unprotected forms and you have, let's just say, you know, normally you have 20 signups a day and then a week later you see 250 signups in one day, either you publish something and it went viral, which (laughs) if that's true, then that's fantastic. Um, But if you didn't, there might be something wrong as far as like bot signups go. I don't know. This is kind of a hard one. It's not necessarily a one size fits all. It's definitely something that is dependent on your audience. And if you are like watching your list carefully, I think lists that are usually a lot larger don't notice this happening as easily as someone that maybe has a smaller list just because their volume of signups is a lot different. But if you are not using a double opt-in or an incentive email, otherwise called an incentive email, then yeah, it's really easy for bots to sign up to your list. And what will happen is your complaint rate will usually be a little bit higher um, because they are signing up and those people are instantly complaining because they didn't sign up to be on your list. Yep. This one is, yeah, not a fun one. But again, with DMARC, it is one that at least there are really, really clear steps to take to fix it. But I've definitely seen list bombing cause a ton of reputation issues for senders because, like you're saying, essentially what happens, and you don't mean for this to happen, but you start sending messages to people who have no clue who you are. They never signed up for your list. They were added to your form through some sort of bot or script. And Of course, most people, if they get an email from someone they don't know, they're going to mark the message as spam or just not engage with it. So what happens is mailbox providers see a huge spike in complaints from your messages or a huge spike in unengagement, and that's never a good thing. So that usually makes your sender reputation go down and makes your spam filtering go up and causes all kinds of problems. So figuring out if that's happening to you can be tough, like you're saying, Melissa. 
One way that I like to look that kind of works for every sender is just to go through your list of people who have complained about your emails. I would say to do that fairly regularly and just look through some of those people and look at patterns. So if you are looking through and you see that for the most part, it's people who have been on your list for a while or, you know, maybe they just were unengaged and then they complained, it's not as big of a deal. But if you're seeing that for quite a few people, they signed up to your list, you sent them that confirmation email or the very first email, whatever it may be, and they immediately mark it as spam, that's not normal behavior. Unless for some reason, whatever you sent them right off the bat was not what they were expecting, that's just not normal. So that's a really good sign that those people didn't actually sign up and that you need to look into that form they signed up through and make sure that you get it protected um, with reCAPTCHA, uh, double opt-in, or if you're using ConvertKit and you use our new forms, we have automated bot protection for you. So you actually don't really need to do anything else. Exactly. Yeah, those are just, I don't know, that one, I kept that separate from, you made a good point though, it does affect your sending reputation overall. I kept that one separate because I felt like it was a little easier to pinpoint. Definitely. Than maybe some other things that fall within the sender reputation tree. But yeah, I think, I don't know, do you have anything else for why emails go to spam that you see regularly to add? I don't think I would add anything. I think we can sum up kind of what we said towards the beginning of like, there are almost three levels of spam filtering. And the first one is normal and literally every single email sender will experience it, where it's just that some of your emails simply go to spam for individuals. That's always going to happen. There is no sender out there with 100% inbox placement. It's just not the way deliverability works. So everyone's going to experience that on some level. So if your cousin tells you their email went to spam, but your open rates are 30% plus, you don't have a spam filtering problem. That's a really great open rate. Your cousin just, you know, the message went to spam. And in that case, you should tell your cousin to mark it as not spam and add your address to their safe senders list or contact list. I think the next step in spam filtering is like your emails are going to spam at a specific mailbox provider. So that can definitely happen. We've had people where all their emails go to spam at Gmail or all their emails go to spam at Hotmail. So that's a different kind of problem. And you'll want to diagnose what's going on there. And then the third and worst kind of problem would be like, your emails are going to spam at multiple mailbox providers. That one's much more rare, but it would be that your sender reputation is really damaged or you're on some sort of major, major block list that's used by multiple mailbox providers like Spam House. So I would say those are the three tiers of potential spam filtering. Everyone experiences tier one. That tier two we talked about, I would say happens to some percentage of senders, maybe like 10 to 20%. You know, that's just <laughs> based on what I'm seeing uh, every day, not super scientific. And then, you know, the most severe kind we do not see very often. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. That's a great point. And actually, kind of on that note, something that I did notice, you and I actually talked about it earlier today. We had a customer more recently who was having issues reaching the inbox of a group of people who all had the same education domain. So whether I don't remember the specifics, but I think it was, you know, like, a, for example, a college. And mm -hmm. if you're emailing to all of your maybe the faculty because you're on you know, the staff at a college or whatever. And in that case, if your emails are being blocked by the spam filter, 
of that college domain, that's not necessarily because you have a bad sending reputation. That could be because the college itself has a lot stricter spam filtering going on. So I don't know if you have any more to kind of add to that, but I I do think that sometimes those situations, it's like, oh, well, it could feel like maybe it's a sender reputation issue, but it's actually not. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think it speaks a lot to the difference between B2B email marketing and B2C email marketing. And we tend to really focus on B2C in this podcast because I think for the most part, most people are sending B2C, meaning you're sending to Gmail addresses and Hotmail addresses. And of course, you have some business addresses sprinkled in there, but they're not uh, the majority of your list. But then there are some people like the sender you mentioned who are only sending to business addresses like a school domain or whatever businesses they work with. So yeah, exactly. In that case, businesses, especially like schools or hospitals or government organizations are just much, much, much more strict. They don't really want their teachers receiving external promotions like that. The school email, at least as a former teacher, I can say that the school email was really meant to be a place for you to communicate with parents and students and other teachers, and of course, like the district, but they don't want your teacher email to be flooded with promotional emails because then you're probably not going to be as efficient or see those parent emails that are in there. So I think in that case, if even one teacher marks your message as spam, there's a good chance the IT team, because they're going to see that, is going to be like, let's just block this sender. So things are very different in that realm. And like you're saying, it didn't mean that person had a bad sender reputation. It more spoke to the IT team's strictness of the domain they were sending email to. Right. Awesome. Well, yeah. So spam can be all kinds of just under the sun, all (laughs) all kinds of things. It's important to test. And then also, you know, if you're at an ESP where they have a deliverability team, you know, it's great to do your own testing and kind of report to them what you find. It makes our job a little bit easier. And usually we could do a deeper dive if there's a bigger issue um, because we'll have more time because you will have already done the initial testing. And it's just helpful to kind of be able to see where you are at as a sender in general. So let's see. The next question that I see frequently is why do subscribers bounce and what should I do with them when they bounce? So an ESP, I would say, I mean, I don't have as much experience as Alyssa, but ConvertKit deals with these bounces for you. And any, I would say, like relatively reputable ESP also deals with those bounces. Subscribers can bounce for so many reasons. So like I mentioned previously, ConvertKit will deal with these bounces for you. So if there is a hard bounce, we will remove them from your active subscriber list to ensure that you don't continue to send to them. And then soft bounces will keep the subscriber active and the next email you send out will basically just start fresh and retry, you know, trying to get to that subscriber again. A way that I described this recently was it's kind of like when you would call someone on the phone on a landline back in the day and you would get that like busy tone, which means hang up and try again later. I'm on the other line with someone else. That's kind of what happens with bounced messages. And ultimately, you know, if ConvertKit didn't remove those hard bounce subscribers from your list and you continued to try them over and over again, it would probably destroy your sender reputation. Yeah, it definitely wouldn't help. So The difference between a hard bounce and soft bounce 
you probably know if you've been listening to this podcast, but a hard bounce means it's a more permanent bounce. Like if you called someone on the phone and it was like, you know, phone number disconnected. I think that's a possibility. Yep. Yep. So that'd be like a hard bounce. <laughs> um, so in email terms, it's like whenever someone bounces because it's not a real address, maybe there was a typo in it, or maybe that person has just closed down that email address. I know I did that with my old AOL address. So <laughs> if anyone emails it, it's going to bounce. <laughs> and soft bounces are more temporary, like your example of the, you know, I'm on another line on a call. So you can have a soft bounce because the mailbox is full or that server is busy that they're receiving mail on. All kinds of reasons. There's really hundreds of different reasons. But Yeah, exactly. So if someone has a more permanent bounce, a hard bounce, then ConvertKit and I'm sure any other reputable ESP, I would hope, will make sure to suppress that address for you. And that way you won't keep emailing those bad addresses because, you know, if Gmail did see that a certain sender kept sending to the same invalid Gmail addresses over and over and over, it would be a negative signal and a reason for them to decrease your sender reputation because they're going to know this person doesn't take email seriously. They're not concerned with their list health and they keep emailing addresses that we're telling them don't exist. Right. So that's a great thing that an ESP handles for you. And I oftentimes see people say or ask, you know, on the same note, do you think I should delete my bounce subscribers? Because in ConvertKit, you know, you can go to that that list and look at all the people who have hard bounced. And I I usually tell people, no, I would not remove those people. It's important to see who has bounced and oftentimes, you know, when they bounced. That way, if that person signs up to your list again, or if, you know, there's a lot of different reasons, but it can also help you see if there's issues going on with your list, with your sending. So there's a few reasons not to delete them. It ultimately just won't do anything productive for you. Yeah, exactly. At least at ConvertKit, you're not um, charged for those. So I would always recommend keeping that data in your account um, because if for some reason someone exported all your contacts and we're going to email them somewhere else, they might accidentally end up emailing bounce subscribers because they found them on another list of yours and on the ConvertKit list, they weren't bounced. So anyways, it's always best to just keep the data there so you have it and you know not to email those people in the future. Yep. Not not too hard of a concept, really. I mean, it's more to protect you as a sender and, you know, that way you're not emailing invalid addresses. Right. The next question I would say I see a decent amount is usually it's people that are newer to ConvertKit or maybe even to email marketing in general. But they ask, what do I need to do to my DNS settings when, you know, starting with a new email marketing platform? And Alyssa, you're, you're really good at explaining this one, so I'm going to let you kind <laughs> oh, of gosh. explain um, just specifically with ConvertKit why a person, unless they are setting up a verified sending domain for a number of reasons, they might you know do that. What does ConvertKit deal with as far as like the actual sending process? You know, I, I always have a hard time explaining technically the the DNS settings and like why at ConvertKit specifically, because we've done things differently in the past, why people don't have to go mess with those. Yeah, happy to help. So for anyone sending from any ESP or just anywhere really uh, sending like promotional emails, you need your own sending domain. So it's important to have that in place. And I think one mistake we see people make early on is that they don't have any MX records for that domain. 
So you need to have an MX record for your domain in order to send and receive emails. Typically, those will get created once you set up an email provider for your domain. So for example, I personally have just always used Squarespace for my domains. And I feel like I buy domains every time I get an idea. (laughs) I'm like, oh, this would be a good business. They sit there forever. I do nothing. And then I end up deleting them. But anyways, so I feel like I've done this a lot. But if you go buy a domain, typically after you buy it or in that process, they say like, hey, you want to set up Gmail for this domain or whatever kind of mail provider? And at that point, maybe you decide to set up email. You're going to need to. So Whenever you set up email, usually it goes ahead and adds MX records to your domain for you. But if you haven't done that step, I would recommend deciding which mailbox provider you want to use for your business email and then just kind of Googling, you know, setting up new G Suite account or Office 365 account, linking it with your domain, and they'll help you with all those MX records. So that's sort of outside of your ESP, but it's important if you want to send and receive emails with that business domain. So for most senders, that's really all they need to do, especially using ConvertKit, but with any ESP, because at most ESPs, right off the bat, that ESP is going to use their domain and information in the background of the email. So the return path domain, which is where SPF is checked, and the DKIM domain. So really all you need is a valid email address with your own kind of website as the domain with valid MX records. It's usually step one and all most people need. But if you decide you do want to use DMARC, which we have a whole episode on, if you go to the authentication episode, we really dive in. But if you decide you want DMARC or you just want more control over your email deliverability and you're really confident in your sender reputation and you send really frequently or regularly, then you might set up a validated or verified sending domain. And what that means is your domain is going to be put in the return path of the email and the DKIM signing domain of the email. At ConvertKit, we do that for you essentially by you just setting up two CNAME records. If you don't know what a CNAME record is, it essentially says this website of mine or this domain of mine or subdomain should point to this other domain. So I could set up a CNAME record on alyssadoolin.com called podcast. And it means if anyone goes to podcast.alyssadoolin.com, I can say send them to deliverabilitydefined.com. So it's essentially just pointing to something else. So if you set up those two CNAME records that we have you set up, It essentially allows you to use your sending domain in the background of the message, but really what's happening is those domains are just pointing back to ConvertKit. So you don't have to actually put up with the hard part of signing DKIM and rotating DKIM keys. It's very technical and a lot of work. Um, We will end up actually doing that for you, but whenever you're actually sending your messages, it looks like the whole message is coming from your domain and it's all branded through you. So... Just to sum it up, most people just need a valid working domain with MX records and they're good to go. That was just so well put. I'm never going to explain. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) No, it really was. I think people, you know, I I often see people reach out and say, what do I need to do with SPF and DKIM? And so that's why I always kind of struggle explaining because I don't necessarily want to go down that path of being like, well, here's why you don't need to worry about it. It's a long path. Yeah. But the good news is that we do you know, like we say, any reputable ESP does a lot of that work for you. So the only thing you really have to worry about is 
like Alyssa said, the MX record on your own, your own domain, which isn't done through ConvertKit. You just need that to send messages with, con- like, you know, using ConvertKit. And then if you have a DMARC policy with us specifically, you will need to set up a verified sending domain. So those are really the only two things you have to be worried about. And it is a common question, uh, which is totally understandable because there are a lot of names for things at different mm-hmm. ESPs. So it can definitely, you know, cause a little confusion. Yeah, we're here to help, though, if you need it. We know it sounds <laughs> like a lot, but you've got this. Too many acronyms, too many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> deliverability words. Okay, the next one is something that, and Alyssa, you can also correct me on this. I feel like I've noticed it a lot more lately. And originally, I think we were saying technically it had to do with one thing or another thing, but I've definitely noticed this more. How often should I send emails to my list? This one, I think I always used to default to it just kind of depends on your engagement with your audience, which I still think has some kind of play in this question. But I have noticed more recently that if you are a sender and you sent consistently, let's say once a week for 10 months, and then I think maybe a lot of it has to do with COVID and just, you know, sort of the changes in the world and people feeling less comfortable emailing their list because they know people have a lot going on right now, but all of a sudden they dropped off on their sending. So maybe they weren't sending for like two months and then I see them pick back up again and I notice they have really low open rates. So I think just like anything else in deliverability, consistency is key. There's obviously a line of where that goes to, you know, I think sending two emails a day to your entire list will exhaust them. And you'll probably start to notice, you know, higher complaint rates, that kind of thing. But overall, even if you don't feel like you have sort of the capacity to continue to send maybe as frequently as you were before, it appears that completely stopping sending and then restarting again is really hurting people. Yes, I totally agree. Like you mentioned, it really generally mostly depends on the business. So like, for example, the morning brew or the skim is a daily newsletter. That makes sense. Everybody's expecting to get that email once a day and it has news stories and all that good stuff. So that's a good example of when someone can send once a day and it makes so much sense and they probably have excellent engagement. But if you are sending, you know, maybe a promotional email about your Etsy account every single day, it's probably not going to perform as well because everyone doesn't need to see that content every day like they do with news stories or they might not be expecting it that often. So I think figuring out what works for your brand, what are you sending is important, but sending too much, I think, like you said, sending more than one email a day usually is not a good idea. Again, depends on your brand. Maybe you have an AM newsletter and a PM newsletter and people love it. You have great open rates, then good for you, keep going. But typically I will notice if someone has low open rates and I sign up to their list to kind of see what people are seeing, I'll get two emails off the bat. And then the next day I'll get two more emails. The next day I'll get two more. And I'll have to tell them, you are sending way too much email. I didn't open any of those and you still kept sending to me, which is you know, causing so many negative signals. And a lot of times they don't even realize they were sending that much because they have so many segments and automation set up that they honestly didn't even know what they were sending. So be sure you know, sign up every now and then to your form with a new email address and kind of put yourself in your subscriber shoes. And then exactly like you're saying, going too long without sending anything 
will cause your sender reputation to essentially become blank. So that's never a great thing because then you need to kind of rewarm your sender reputation up. And mailbox providers are going to treat your mail with more risk when you don't have a sender reputation established. So that's another reason why open rates might suddenly fall if you take a month off sending or more. So try not to do that. You know, with the way email works now, you can schedule email. So if maybe you're going on a few months of vacation, just go ahead and before you leave, schedule some emails to go out maybe every other week or at least once a month to keep your sender reputation going. Awesome. Yeah, I think that one I've been noticing a little bit more and I can't help but wonder if it does have a little bit to do with the fact that people maybe just don't feel normal, if you will, sending right. to their to their list just with everything going on in the world. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes it feels weird to promote things when there's so much just sad stuff or, you know, financial issues right. a lot of people are experiencing. So it might feel weird to send out promotions. So it's a great time to reevaluate and see what is your audience need right now and maybe pivot a little bit. And that's okay. Great point. Let's see. Another question we get is when someone uses a like email testing tool like Glock Apps or Mail Tester, I think people oftentimes panic when they use these these tools, which can be great tools, by the way. But we have to remember, and we've said this so many times, that email providers do not give out email placement information. And that is one of the number one things I like to tell customers as a reminder. We don't get the information on, on our end. I mean, there's just, they don't do it because if they did, spammers would very easily be able to take advantage of that um, and figure out how to manipulate the system. So we'll have someone say, I noticed that it says that 40% of my emails are going to spam. And I think that Alyssa has also made some really good points in that open rates are not the best metric to always focus on. Instead, engagement is important to focus on. So if you use one of those tools and it gives you some feedback about, you know, what it's seeing, but you look at your open rates and they look okay, and you look at your engagement and it looks great, I would have a hard time believing, you know, that they know exactly what deliverability issues you might be experiencing. Yeah, I think those kinds of tools can be helpful in the right context. Sure, it's another data point to go off of, but you can't just take the data for what it is. Like you really have to dive into it. I use inbox placement tests every now and then for customers, maybe if they're doing an audit or just need some more data. So I've definitely used them. But if I see 100% inbox placement or 20% spam filtering, I don't just take that as truth and say, right. this is exactly what's happening to you. If it says spam filtering, like I have to dive in more and see what did the header say? What did the content look like? And then test it myself and all these other things. So definitely don't panic with the results that you get on those tests. Only use them if you truly understand where to dive in next or maybe hire someone or get some help to really investigate. Because yeah, I think those can be helpful data points, but remember that the testing that they're doing isn't with real subscribers. So those seed list addresses are test emails that are often used over and over and over and over to test inbox placement. And they're not real people. They're not engaging with the emails. They're not doing anything. So if someone has a seed list address that's a Gmail address, and let's say it's test123 at gmail.com, just made that up, <laughs> but and that 
email has been used by 50 other people to test the inbox placement and Gmail sees your email come through to test, they might think this email address has not engaged with any other person. Like what's going on with this email address? It doesn't seem like a real person or maybe it's someone who's being list bombed. Like let's put this email in spam to protect them. So there's just so many other factors and you can't treat them exactly like you would treat your actual audience who did subscribe to receive your emails and are engaging with your emails. So I think one point you're making, Melissa, that's so good is like, if there are no other signs that anything is going wrong, like your opens have been good, your engagement's been great, no subscribers have mentioned problems to you, and you just decided to you know, do this test, which I think does happen fairly often, don't freak out if you see that it says your messages are going to spam. Because if your messages truly were going to spam, you would know about it. Like We know how that goes. Yep. If anyone's having a deliverability problem, you know <laughs> you're having a deliverability problem, and it feels not fun. So yeah. Just take it for what it yeah, is. Take it with a grain can of be salt. Helpful, but yeah. Kind of like hitchhiking on that whole topic. There is the question about block listed IPs. So if you use a tool like Lock Apps, sometimes it will say you are sending from a an IP that has been block listed by Spam House or hopefully it won't say Spam House. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that one you would need to That one would be bad. Yeah. <laughs> but just any any of those like spam cops. Sorbs. Yeah, Sorbs. Yeah. I mean, I guess the point, too, with the spam house would be if for some reason. So, yes, spam house is the most important one to pay attention to. However, people like Alyssa and I are constantly monitoring block lists and it's very rare. So let's just say you did end up on that. Hopefully you wouldn't. By the time you actually figure that out, it's probably been taken care of already. Um, and that's the job of an ESP is to make sure that they are keeping their IPs healthy. We also have talked about this in another episode, that their job is to keep their IPs healthy, make sure that we don't end up on those kinds of block lists. So I do think from time to time, we will see someone reach out and say that. And by the time they do, it's been long gone. And then there are some less, you know, less scary and... Impactful, impactful yeah, impactful block lists like uh, Sorbs. Well, I was just going to say, so we do have a whole episode on this one too. So if you need more details, go to that one. It's called um, Demystifying Block Lists. But to sum it up, essentially, there are a lot of block lists out there. And I mean, anyone can create a block list. I could start one now. That doesn't mean anyone would actually use it to filter mail. So I might start a block list and actually catch some people that, you know, have spammed me, put them on my list. And essentially that's what a block list is. It says, here are IP addresses and domains who have hit our spam traps or who have generated, you know, some sort of complaints. Here they are. That's all they're doing. They're not actually taking action on your mail. And then mailbox providers or spam filters can pick and choose which block lists they want to pay attention to. So Spam House, for example, is a huge block list organization that's amazing. They're really great. So Gmail, for example, might say, if an IP address has been listed on Spam House, send the message to Spam or bounce it altogether. And that's a big deal, obviously. But Gmail is not going to say, if an IP is on Alyssa's block list yeah. that she just created, send it to Spam because <laughs> they don't care <laughs> about my block list that I just made. And uh, there are a lot of block lists that are reputable. They're great, like Spam Cop. They have very smart people working there. They're doing a great job. And it doesn't mean that they're equivalent to me starting a block list in right. any way. However, 
all it takes typically is one so one person sending to a spam trap to have an IP address listed on SpamCop. When anyone is an ESP sending billions of emails a month, one of those senders is going to hit a spam trap every now and then. Right. Um, and that's just, it's inevitable. And also, SpamCop just isn't in use by that many mailbox providers like Gmail, Microsoft. They're not looking at SpamCop to filter mail. So, it's one of those that if you see it pop up um, and it says you are the IP address you're sending from is listed on SpamCop, those block listings specifically go away automatically in 24 hours. Again, doesn't mean they're not important or that we're not contacting SpamCop or looking into it. It just means it's not a reason to panic. Right. <laughs> and that was just one example. There are hundreds of other block lists out there like that. Some block lists focus on specific areas like Brazil or Japan or whatever it may be. So you might see, oh man, the IP I'm sending from is on this Brazilian block list. And you might have zero people on your list who are Brazilian. And again, doesn't mean that's not important. I'm sure your ESP is looking into it, but it does mean you have zero reason to panic because your mail is not impacted in any way. It doesn't affect you at all. Right. And I think that's... um if you do notice for whatever reason that you are on a more impactful block list, you know, that's the job of the deliverability team at any ESP is to watch out for those kinds of things. Obviously, when people reach out to us, we don't say, oh, like you shouldn't care. We've taken care, you know, but we we yeah. do we do watch for those things. And it's very important to any ESP, you know, who wants to be sure that they are giving or that they're putting their customers on the best, most healthy IPs possible, like that's going to be part of their job. And then also, I think a lot of people, and I don't know if this is just generalizing, but I do notice people who are newer to email marketing will use one of those tools because I think they're just trying to gauge kind of where they're at. And they often feel like it's a convert kit issue. But if you were to use any ESP to send mail, I'm sure it happens every once in a while because it's just part of email, kind of like an email going to spam. Right. And there are just some block lists out there that no one uses and they list everyone. So again, if you see, oh, you're on this block list, I wouldn't panic. Look into it. You can email your ESP and see like, does this impact me at all? That's a great question to ask. Am I impacted by this? If the answer is yes, your ESP has probably already been looking into it or fixing it for you without you even knowing. I would say 90% of the time, maybe more, the answer is going to be no. Mm -hmm. That's just a block list that's out there, they list any large sender and it doesn't actually impact any mail. Exactly. So just kind of goes along with the the email testing tools. Like, like we said, they can be great benchmarks. They can provide some information. But I do think it's helpful to reach out to a, your deliverability team at your ESP just to get some more information because it is very easy to panic when you see certain things pop up on those results. Yeah. And just like we mentioned earlier, this is one of those situations. It's like, if nothing else about your email is suffering, just don't panic in general. (laughs) Because again, if you are on an impactful block list, you will certainly know. You will have a very, very low open rate, maybe like one, two percent, less than five percent, probably. You'll have huge number of bounces. You'll see that there was an issue. But if you have normal open rates and click rates and all of that good stuff, and then you run it through a test and it says you're on a block list, then there's a very good chance you're not impacted. So no need to panic. 
it's a totally understandable thing to be worried about. But your ESP, that's like the great thing about using an ESP is they do so much work for you on the back end. Yeah. Let's see. Okay, this is one that, again, understandable. I don't think that there's like a lot of information unless you dig for it, like, and you research yourself. But when you sign up with a new ESP, and let's say you were at a different one prior um, and you had an open rate of 40%, and then you come over to ConvertKit and you start sending, let's just say, your first week and a half, two weeks, and you notice your open rate is like, you know, 15%, 20%. We get a lot of questions that say, I just moved over to ConvertKit and my open rate's not as high as it was at my last ESP. And kind of like Alyssa said earlier, you know, when you're starting fresh somewhere and you change something about your sender, like habits, for example, sending on a new IP, that gets email box providers' attention. So they are going to either place your emails more often in the inbox or more often in spam to see what subscribers do with them, what they do with the emails themselves. If they're super engaged and they're looking for those emails and they find them in spam, they'll probably move them to their inbox or you know engage with them in some way. So it's important to just remember that it takes a little bit of consistency and patience when you do move over to a new ESP. It takes time to build that sender reputation back up again to where email box providers recognize you sending uh, with your domain from a new IP. Yeah. And I've also heard from some of our biggest customers, especially, I moved over to ConvertKit and my open rate's way higher than it used to be. So it really does go both ways. And I think the biggest difference uh, that I see is kind of what first impression you make on your new ESP, whether it's ConvertKit or someone else. So you are making a change in the way you send emails, just like you said, and mailbox providers are going to be a little apprehensive. They already have a red flag raised because they see, okay, um, AlyssaDoolin.com is sending with some IP addresses and other domains in the back end that I've never seen them send with before. This could be a spammer pretending to be her, you know, whatever it may be. So they're going to be a little, treat your email with some more risk than usual. And they're going to be paying really close attention to what happens with your first emails that you're sending from this new infrastructure. So if you just send to your full list, a large volume maybe right off the bat, not a great sign. Just because again, it's a spike in volume from a new platform And if your list isn't um, extremely engaged, then it just might send them some negative signals off the bat. But what I recommend doing and what a lot of senders do and have good success is don't just immediately send to your normal list from your new ESP, um, but send a smaller email first to your most engaged subscribers. If you're able to send to like people who have opened in the last 30 days first, that's great because the mailbox providers are going to see, okay, this person has changed their infrastructure. Let's wait and see what happens. Okay. Here's their first send. And they're going to see, boom, like tons of positive engagement. Most people are opening, most people are clicking and that's great. And they're going to kind of be more relaxed with future sends and your open rate will probably be a lot healthier. But if again, they just see that you send to your normal list and maybe 20% of people open and it's a new platform and they're just unsure of what's going on, that can be an issue. And also I've seen this in the past. If you have kind of a poor sender reputation on your existing ESP and you move to a new ESP and you send out, you know, to your full list, you might actually have better inbox placement and people 
who used to get your emails in the spam folder might see them in the inbox for the first time in a long time and immediately mark them as spam because they weren't engaged. They're like, who is this? I think I signed up for this forever ago. I haven't been getting their emails. I don't want it. And that can actually make your complaints spike and then make your open rates from then on out take a nosedive. So there's all sorts of variations here. And the key is just to start with your most engaged people, make sure the people that you're bringing over from your last ESP are not super unengaged, make sure you don't start emailing people who complained in the past or unsubscribed in the past or bounced in the past. That's a very common Mm -hmm. uh, mistake people make. So I think if you do all of those things, you'll probably see better results at your new ESP. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's why I feel like we kind of preach the don't just use um, open rates as the only metric that you look at, but instead look at other kinds of engagement like clicks. Because if you use a service, you know, in ConvertKit specifically, you're able to tag those subscribers and show who is the most engaged, who's, you know, not only opening your emails, but also like obviously very like reading through and clicking. And that way you can decide who you're going to send to in that sort of situation a little bit more easily than just trying to like guess or or just use opens as you know your only metric yeah so let's do the last and final question that i i almost feel like i've seen a spike in this more recently for whatever reason but it will be one subscriber um, who reaches out to you know one of our customers and says i'm not getting your emails at all And the customer will reach out to us and say, I have a subscriber who says they're not getting any of my mail. So this could be a number of things. It could actually circle back to some of the topics we've already talked about. But the first thing, and I think this would be really, really helpful if it was more, I don't know, like widely talked about or if people knew how much of an impact it could make. But the first thing I always tell them, unless I am able to find very quickly like a deliverability issue that I see on our end, I always say, ask that subscriber to add your sending address to their contact list. This works almost every single time. Again, unless maybe there's some underlying deliverability issue that maybe we haven't discovered yet or uh, we're looking into. This is super helpful. And it's it's kind of one of those things I struggle with a little bit because I think people think that it's sort of a, a cop-out, if you will, for us not doing something on our end. But I usually try to reinforce the fact that asking your subscribers to add your sender email to their contact list is a positive like metric to email box providers. So even though it's you're trying to fix an issue that maybe a subscriber is having, just that one specifically, the more the more your subscribers do this, the better it looks for email box placement for those, you know, like Gmail or Hotmail. Yeah, exactly. And I think this one speaks a lot to just how much we as email users don't understand how email truly, truly works. Like we've said before, a lot of people think it's just, it should be instant. Mm -hmm. It should be seamless. It should be just a direct, you know, from me to you, bam, you have it. Unfortunately, that's just not the way email works. It is a multi-step process between the sender and the receiver. And at the end of that process, you know, it's like a back and forth conversation between servers. And at the very end, the receiver will either say, 250 okay, message accepted, which means delivered, 
or it'll say something else and it'll have a bounce reason. Mm -hmm. And there's no more data sharing after that point. So in these cases, almost always the person says, my subscriber hasn't gotten the email. And we look and we can see, well, their server, their uh, mailbox says the message was delivered Mm -hmm. and accepted. Mm -hmm. That's really all we have to go off of, unfortunately. Again, that's just the way email works. And then once that message was accepted by the receiver, the sender has absolutely no control. It's like if, you know, a package gets handed off to you, uh, let's say FedEx puts it on your front porch, and then you put it, you know, somewhere in your house, and then you can't find it anymore. And maybe your roommate or whoever lives with you is like, where did this package go? If they reach out to UPS, UPS is going to say, we delivered it, you know, speak to your roommate. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happened. And that's kind of like what happens with email. The sender, like ConvertKit, has no more control. Once we've handed off that message and it says delivered, it's now in the mailbox provider's hands and they can really do whatever they want with it. We hope that it goes to the inbox, but they can place it in spam. They can put it in the trash. They can drop it, meaning it just kind of disappears. There's all sorts of places it can go. So I love the idea of if it's just a one-time kind of this subscriber is having an issue, and my open rates are fine, my click rates are fine, it's just this one subscriber, really they just need to essentially like allow list or add you as a safe sender to their contact list because somewhere in their mailbox settings, something is going wrong. It's not liking your email and putting you in their contact list or safe senders list essentially just says, if an email comes in through this person, you better put it straight in my inbox. Mm-hmm. That's where I want it. It's where it belongs. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not any sort of cop out. Like it's just a good practice. But I totally understand how it might feel frustrating if you are assuming there's a much larger issue at right. play. Totally. And we're like, we'll tell them to add you to your yeah. <laughs> address book. Like yeah. I get it. But also, if it isn't a widespread issue, it's just this one person, that's totally normal. Again, it's just kind of the way technology works. Mm -hmm. I wish it was all absolutely perfect and seamless. Maybe one day we'll get there, but it's not. Email is kind of clunky sometimes and messages get lost. Even though they say delivered, maybe the mailbox provider just decided to drop it uh, for no reason. So it is a good step. And it should be encouraged. And, you know, there's a lot of other reasons maybe why they're not getting your emails that are related to what we've talked about already. Maybe your sender reputation. Normally, you'll notice other things, though, in your account that, you know, you'll be able to say, okay, I think there's a larger problem. I don't think it's just this one subscriber. Maybe that one subscriber alerts you to the fact there's a problem, which is also like, you know, that's part of our job. If you know, you say this person's not receiving my messages and we look at the account and everything looks fine. You know, you can always monitor a little bit, see if someone else reaches out and has the same issue, that kind of thing. It's just really easy for people to also make mistakes. Sometimes they will set a stricter like filter in their own email account and not even realize that that's what's causing, you know, the emails they want to receive to not go to their inbox, which is also, you know, very specific to each subscriber subscriber. Uh, I feel when I say that word a lot, it starts to sound like not a real word anymore. <laughs> I know. Truly. I, feel you. I was like, wait, yeah. did that sound right? But yeah, I mean, the client of email box providers, the customer is those individual subscribers. They're going to do what they can to protect those people, to make sure they're having a good email experience, that they're not getting crap in their inbox, that they're seeing the emails they want to see. So it definitely is a bit of a puzzle. It takes time to 
troubleshoot deliverability issues. It takes time to accept sometimes it's not a deliverability issue. But I think all these questions sort of relate to each other at the end of the day. You know, we've always said too, sometimes one deliverability issue can lead to other things happening. So if you do have questions, don't hesitate to reach out to your deliverability team at your ESP because they it's definitely helpful to have a second set of eyes on your account. Yeah. And if you don't use ConvertKit, you can still reach out to us. We do have a form, uh, convertkit.com slash deliverability. And we're happy to either answer the question on the podcast or help connect you to someone who can help. But one point you made I want to touch on was about the emails kind of getting lost. I know I've definitely seen before where it's like the person just doesn't really know how to work the tabs in their account. You know, maybe they don't understand the promotions folder or the social or updates or whatever tab they have in Gmail or um, in Hotmail. Sometimes there's like, you know, the focused tab and then the other Mm -hmm. tab. They're all the inbox. But there's definitely cases like that. And we understand you don't want to reach back to your subscriber and you know, blame tell them. them. Like, oh, I'm pretty <laughs> sure you have it. Yeah. Look in all your tabs. Yeah. But to be honest, that is a thing that we see happen a lot. So a polite way to handle that as the sender is to just ask them to add you to their address book. And then your email should go to their like primary focused tab from then on mm-hmm. out. And you won't have to deal with them not understanding how to work their tabs and folders and filters. Because a lot of times that is what's happening is it's their own settings, but they just don't understand how to use them. Yeah. And I mean, I I actually had that happen the other day when I was doing a test with a Hotmail address. And I was like, wait, what what is the focus? Why is the focus folder right? Like, why is it going in here? And I like had a hard time adjusting my mindset from Gmail to Hotmail. And it was like kind of an embarrassing moment for me. But it's true. I mean, sometimes you just as the subscriber, you aren't seeing it because you're you know, not looking in the right place or whatever. And yeah, obviously, as a sender, you don't want to just outright blame them (laughs) for not (laughs) figuring it out. Um, But like Alyssa said, that's my number one thing to tell customers. Just ask them to add you to their contact list. And after that, it should be pretty simple and it should usually go to their primary inbox. I see it all the time. Yeah. Well, you kind of you a little earlier, you kind of summarized everything I wanted to say by just saying, you know, as a reminder, email is not a, a, an exact science. It's like a puzzle. It takes time to figure out. And even when you think you have it figured out, sometimes external things will happen and you'll have to reevaluate again. And that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's why <laughs> deliverability is so interesting, I think. And it's complex. And it does help if you come into it with a sense of curiosity and understanding that it is complex. Email is complex. It's not just going to instantly go to people's inbox all the time. There are a lot of factors at play. So keeping that level of curiosity and problem solving is going to help you actually get to the root issue. I think a lot of people, like we mentioned earlier, just start with panic because of some weird red flag they saw on some test that's totally not related to their actual issue. Mm -hmm. And it can send you down the wrong path. So coming into any deliverability problem you have with that level of, I want to dig in and I want to get to the root and kind of taking emotion out of it is going to help you have a better end result. But like I mentioned, if you do need extra eyes on something, feel free to contact us through our form at convertkit.com slash deliverability. And we're happy to see what we can do for you. Well, I think that kind of sums it all up. 
We would love to hear from you guys too, even if it's not about a deliverability issue you're having, but if you have questions just about deliverability in general, if you have ideas for another podcast topic, like we just, we love to hear from people and kind of know what feedback to uh, go off of. Yeah, we actually just got a topic request today that I thought was so good and it's probably going to be a full episode, but um, their question is, I've been spoofed. What do I do? Oh, I really like that. I know. Yeah. So we love it. That should Uh, come out around Halloween, (laughs) don't you think? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Spooky spoofing. Yay. (laughs) That would be great. Oh, now I'm in the Halloween spirit, fall spirit. I'm really excited for that, but that just came to me. I was like, oh, that sounds like a fun uh, themed episode. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So just keep sending us some ideas, topic requests, questions. Keep giving those five-star reviews. It really does help, actually. It'll help more people find our podcast. So, and it helps keep us going. That's true. (laughs) Cool. All right. Thank you all. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Deliverability Defined. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening. And if you have time, please leave us a review. You can find a resource guide for today's show at convertkit.com slash deliverability, where we outline all of the information you need to know from today's episode. If you have a question or topic you want us to cover, let us know within the ConvertKit community or at convertkit.com slash deliverability. We'll see you next week.